0: You're listening to American Scientist Podcast. For this episode, we're sitting down for a question and answer between molecular biologist and one of our contributing editors, Dr. Efrain Riviera Serrano and clinical professor, HIV and COVID response leader, Dr. Stefan Wallace on fostering community trust in public health. We're asking Dr. Wallace, what drew him to public health and what are the approaches being taken to engage marginalized communities?
1: You have a very intriguing background. I was re- reading about your, how you started and, and what you do now. I read that you, as a kid, maybe in California, wanted to become a lawyer and help under resourced people in your community from that very early age. Um, can you tell us about those aspects that you wanted to improve back then as a kid and how they relate to your current role?
2: I think there were a few different. Areas that I saw as a young person, as a kid growing up. One was um, the over policing, I think, of our communities and the the relationships, right, between law enforcement and our communities. I I also think that the the prioritization of resources in our community towards education. One of the things that I wondered about as a young person, and I I guess I, I studied a little bit more about as I've gotten older is sort of the relationship between income and wealth and health outcomes, more specifically, how there is as a part of that process. There's um, a couple of other things like uh, home ownership. Right. Um, So home ownership is still seen as one of the top indicators of uh, generational wealth in this country. And if communities of color are systematically being excluded from home ownership, then how is this being, how is this happening? And then of course, we know that home ownership largely contributes uh, through the, the property taxes to local schools. And so it's a cycle, right? If black and brown communities are largely being excluded from home ownership, then where are the resources for the schools? And it sort of creates, then, again, this cycle. I observed this growing up, and it was one of the reasons that I was really interested in in law and also uh, uh, from uh, policy.
1: I believe, again, from what I was reading, that it went from that thought of becoming a lawyer from an early age to then moving to Atlanta and creating an organization to provide assistance to young Black men were HIV positive at that. You know, um, can you tell us about the link between that sort of like early stage and, and you that jump towards sort of like public health and label sciences?
2: Yeah. So, um, you know, that sort of awakening for me started in, in really elementary school, um, growing up in South Central Los Angeles, seeing the different ways that people were being treated. Based on how they were perceived in terms of wealth and resources. So, people who drove fancy cars and lived in fancy houses seemed to be treated better than people who lived without access to those kinds of resources. And it continued in high school for me. I graduated from Woodrow Wilson High School in Long Beach, California. And it was there that I really got to experience the sort of relationship between. How much focus and attention is being provided to young people? How much specialized attention young people have in terms of access to to tutoring and to support to navigate K through twelve, and how that supports them going forward? So, I happened to be going to uh, I was uh, going to a church when I lived in Long Beach, and um, because of how well I was doing in school, I was able to take uh, just four classes my senior year. And so I would basically be done with school just before lunch. Um, so I would leave school and actually go to my church and tutor um, young people, particularly uh, those third, fourth, fifth graders, sixth graders in math, you know, history, language. And it was just striking to me how many of them just said that they did, they never had people focus so much attention on them doing well um, in this way. And it was affirming for them, you know, that somebody, they felt like somebody cared because they don't get that kind of attention at the school that they actually go to. And then I, uh, you know, I enlisted in the U.S. Army and there I saw, you know, social justice issues pop up as well. Uh, This was during Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And, you know, I consistently saw people being degraded um, because of their perceived sexuality, you know, back then you couldn't say, you know, based on policy, whether you were LGBTQ or not. Um, but if you were perceived to be, you would likely face some degree of harassment. And then I, I complete my, my tour and decide not to reenlist, um, because I myself was also experiencing some of that harassment. So I got out in you know, when I got my first undergraduate degree and as part of that process, you know, I was on campus and I saw Klu Klux Klan posters and all kinds of things being posted on campus. This was in uh, Lancaster, California. And I, I ended up moving to Atlanta with the initial goal of uh, continuing my education. At one of the HBCUs there, Um, I ended up not going to one of the HBCUs there, but as a process of me sort of making that decision, I met quite a few community members in Atlanta, um, many of whom are, are Black gay men, and I found community, but I also found additional trauma. I was also meeting people who were like 13, 14, 15 years old who were newly diagnosed with HIV or who had been living with HIV for some time. And I was just completely blown away by this. HIV wasn't really on my radar before moving to Atlanta. Uh, Being in the military back then, you were screened uh, consistently. And uh, if you had HIV, you were removed. But I, I knew enough about HIV and STIs that I understood that this was something that um, was not just about people's behavior, but it was about the circumstances um, and the environment. So I, I, I got sort of linked up to this group called Second Sunday of Atlanta, which was organized by older uh, Black gay men. And uh, you know, I felt a bit out of place, but still felt like community. I was the youngest person in the room. So I learned that there was a younger version of this My Brother's Keeper. So I I went to a couple of those discussion group sessions and it was really just a social support group sort of a thing. And then I I thought to myself and talked to a few other people and I'm like, why don't we we do something more with this? And that's how uh, that discussion group sort of got turned into an organization. I served as a volunteer executive director uh, helping to bring uh, in resources to support the organization programmatically. Um, none of us took uh, any pay or compensation from the process. The goal was to ensure that all the resources went back into the organization to support the work in the community. And it was a forest bias model that I believe has helped to inform um, some of the the, the the federal response to HIV and uh, LGBT communities. Uh, so I was disappointed that the work did not continue. In order for you to be in leadership in the organization, you had to be 24 and under. So as I was approaching my 24th, I stepped down and new leadership took over. And um, they continued it for, I think, a couple of years, but I think it ended up dissolving.
1: In all these different facets and realms that you're touching, um, HIV, LGBTQ, COVID 19, the Black community, what are the commonalities there? Like in your years of experience that you see that resonate between these different groups that firsthand you might think that they're completely different, they're pretty exposed to what is going on, but I'm sure there's some commonalities that are there uh, and that you have encountered. So can you name some of those?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think some of the commonalities within the groups are, I think, sheer will and resilience. Um, that there is a desire to beat back this system of oppression, this system of racism that has plagued our society. And in truth, you know, racism doesn't just negatively impact people of color, it also negatively impacts white people as well. Uh, but I think another commonality is um, strength. Through all of the historical and contemporary instances of abuse and neglect um, and miscarriages of justice that people continue to wake up every day hoping and fighting for a better tomorrow.
1: What are either some factors or concrete examples that have led to this this distrust between, for example, the non-scientific community from a particular group?
2: You know, I mentioned a moment ago about things that are unique and shared amongst or outside of the groups, and that is political will, that one of the things that has been absent, we're in 2020, 2021, you know, 400 plus 500 years after uh, the transatlantic slave trade started, and we're just now saying that racism is a public health threat. I'm glad that we've gotten to this place. I, I think that we could have gotten here much sooner if political will was there. The, the factors that sort of beat back our communities are largely related to policy. Who is protected under Title IX, you know, in Title X, like who, who's protected under, you know, the current interpretation of, of sex, sex discrimination and you know underneath all of this to me there's still a very pervasive anti-black sentiment in this country that needs to be addressed and we can do all this work around racism and do all this work around communities and the way that we talk about racism we can we can adopt all this pc language and and put all these cultural responsiveness trainings (laughs) into play but if we don't address the root issue, uh, anti-Black and anti-Indigenous racism, then we would have missed the mark.
1: As part of your current role in, let's say, COVID-19 and the Black community, what approaches have worked in, in bridging the, the community? What are some naive mistakes that people will make that just simply do not work? What has worked
2: really well in the COVID-19 space Um, in engaging Black communities has been utilizing what we call trusted voices. You know, who are those individuals, those groups that have the trust of communities? Um, uh, Oftentimes in, you know, public health conversation or context, those persons might be healthcare providers. Um, So how do we support these persons so that the information is getting out there, so the message is being conveyed, um, and it's being conveyed and by people that other people would listen to. I think there's still very much a mystery around how science is conducted, you know, how clinical trials are conducted. I think that we all sort of collectively have a responsibility to uh, demystify this, but it should really be across the board because um, if it's not going to be COVID, it's going to be something else, and. Many of us who are old enough to remember what uh, the HIV epidemic was like in the 80s and the misinformation campaigns that existed then extinguisher. I also think that, you know, I think a misstep has been the assumption that people of color communities and and uh, black communities in particular are monolithic and that everyone who is a person of color thinks the same way about everything. <laughs> and that. And that You know, Black people, you know, Black people won't participate in clinical trials. They're, you know, they're they're hard to reach. Um, uh, So all of this coded language and all of these excuses and, you know, these, to me, this is old. This is outdated, antiquated attitudes about who we are.
1: Related to what you said about putting them all into one group, I think about differences are shaped by the environment, like the racial issue, but... How is that influenced by where you live in the country and even within a city and how the access to education in those particular counties, for example, how those factors shape like the outcome and the symptom that we're seeing now, yet we're still treating it all as one. Um, When it comes to white Americans, the difference between the rural white American and, again, coming from a, a different environment and different background. Yeah, I, I think that there are different attitudes,
2: definitely based on where people live, and um, the environment helps to shape that for sure. Um, but I also think that there's also this uh, pervasive, and that this is hitting all communities. Um, you know, and I often wonder, you know, who's who's benefiting and profiting from this, or even. Thinking about uh, the conversation about immigration, that uh, that people who immigrate here are um, bad actors. You know, they're criminals. Like that. That these attitudes and this information, this these perceptions, are being constantly communicated. That this is this is benefiting somebody. I would I would even venture to say that someone is profiting from this narrative.
1: Have you seen any fluctuations that? in that pattern with relationship with current political environments?
2: Um, I think there's been a shift, but I also think that that shift that I've seen in the way that diversity looks, for example, in clinical trials has been largely associated with the intentional efforts to meaningfully engage those trusted voices. Um, Thinking about the the Moderna phase three COVID-19 vaccine trials, an example, where we saw 20% Hispanic population participation in that trial. That's unprecedented and 10% black participation. On one hand, I'm like, okay, this was great because we don't typically see trials this diverse. At the same time, I'm also like, we actually need to be doing better. (laughs) So yeah, and, and, and of course, you know, that trial started last summer, you know, during the previous administration.
1: You mentioned that great participation that we're seeing, would it be the same for an infectious disease that, or or any genetic disease for that matter, that is not on the news? Um, And and how would that shape if we don't do our part now?
2: You know, I I have this conversation often when sort of we contrast uh, COVID-19 and HIV, uh, particularly when you think about the vaccines, you know, the people are like, well, You know, we got a COVID-19 vaccine in a year. We're 30 plus years in trying to get an HIV vaccine. Part of it to me is about political will. Part of it is about resources. Um, There's been like like metric tons of resources poured into COVID-19. Tons of resources, not just here in the U.S., but globally. If we had that kind of resourcing in HIV, I believe we might have found an HIV vaccine already. If there was an all-hands-on-deck approach to this, like there is for COVID-19, since hundreds of thousands of people around the world are working on COVID-19. But I also think that COVID-19 is seen as something that people get um, without... You don't have to do anything. You don't have to be a bad person to get COVID-19. You don't have to disobey God to get COVID-19. Whereas with HIV, it's largely seen as something that only those people over there get. God doesn't like them. Those things, of course, I don't at all believe, but I think that those attitudes exist in many communities regarding HIV. And so it doesn't get the same level of attention and prioritization
1: what things have you done personally? And I read some of them, things that, that anyone, any of us can do and related to that. And how do you see your role as a member of the community that you advocate for playing a role there? Because
2: Part of how one becomes a trusted voice is by consistently being present and by providing information um, that's that's not just helpful, but also accurate to be really intentional about the conversations that i'm having you know to address misinformation anytime i encounter it um but also to acknowledge the skepticism that people may have about anything and really particularly if you're a person of color i i think that you actually have a right to be skeptical about everything there has been a lot of Trauma caused by systems towards people of color in this country. And so, skepticism to me is not only, I think, warranted, uh, I think it's actually, in many conversations and in many ways, healthy. The medical establishment, you know, researchers, they have to, they actually have to be more trustworthy. We can't put all of the responsibility on communities. That's about addressing people as people and personhood and not addressing people through their prognosis or their disease or their ailment, that we're all experts over our own lives. And the role of healthcare is to supplement that by providing additional support to maintain our quality of health.
0: Dr. Stefan Wallace has won many awards throughout his career. From his work as the Director of External Relations for the COVID-19 Prevention Network to Director of the HIV Vaccine Trials Network, He's even been highlighted in Bill Gates' blog. His biggest motivator is not his own success though, is to help improve his community's net health outcomes from marginalized communities to those with more opportunity from an individual level to universally. What affirms for me that I am
2: where I'm supposed to be um, and that I am doing the work that I'm supposed to be doing is when I talk to people in the favelas, when I talk to people in in different kinds of communities across the world who say to me, because this research is happening or because the clinical research team is there providing the amazing care that they're providing, I feel better about myself and that my life can continue. Trans women who talked about the support that they received from the clinical research team and how it was affirming to them and and helped them along their journey of not just uh, considering the medical transition, but also the the social transition. Talking to one of the study participants in our research trials, who, um, who said that because she was involved in this research, and she was involved because she truly believed in the research, but that the support she received from being a part of the trial ensured that she didn't have to go do as much sex work as she normally does while still also providing for her family. She felt like her life was less in danger as a result of that. To me, we're in the business of saving lives doing this work and it's something that I take very seriously. And it is really important to me that we do the very best that we do every single interaction that we have with people Um, because people are being beat up enough already.
0: Um, We don't need to add to that. You're listening to American Scientist Podcasts. If you like what you heard, please check out our other episodes on our website, American Scientist Blog. Follow American Scientist and Sigma Xi, the Scientific Research Honor Society on Twitter. Also be sure to check out more by Dr. Efren Rivera Serrano and Dr. Stefan Wallace in our latest issue of American Scientist Magazine. I'm Jordan, Contributing Editor at American Scientist.